Good morning. We are going to be in the book of Ruth this morning, so if you would start turning to Ruth with me. We're going to be in Ruth, and we're going to start in chapter 2, actually, and if you're familiar with the book, at at this point in chapter 2, it's just Naomi and Ruth, and they have gone back to Bethlehem, and they're coming back to the town, and we're going to see God at work in a barley field. So when you get to Ruth chapter 2, go ahead and stand with me as we read chapter 2 together. Ruth chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose favor, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she arose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her mother what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. 
And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we get to come and worship you. We get to sing praise to you. We get to thank you. We get to look at your word and see what it has to say. And I pray this morning that we would see you and marvel at you, that we would see your grandeur and your glory and your greatness, and that you would make your word come alive to us this morning, Lord. I pray that you would communicate your truth through me. I pray that Jesus would be honored and magnified this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, it seems like no matter how you feel about the recent election, everyone feels like these are tumultuous times. Uh, interesting to say the least. Uh, Aaron, my wife and I, we were out yesterday and we thought, oh, we're close to a good ice cream place. Let's go stop and get some ice cream. So we tried to go. We were over by UCI and we couldn't get to where we wanted to go because all the streets were blocked off and there was a protest. I'd heard about these, but I'd never seen one yet. And they were marching down the street and profanity on the signs and all kinds of things. And, and it's just a crazy time to be alive. And it seems like if you look back at history, every generation of believers felt like this is, this is the worst time, this is the end, this is the bad time, and just repeats itself. But there, it's not anything new in one sense, but in another sense, it does feel like we're on this merry-go-round and it's like spinning faster and faster and faster. We're looking around like, is there a stop button on this thing? And... Our tendency as humans, when this happens, is we start focusing inward. We start thinking about, well, well the culture's falling apart, and I just need something to hold on to, and we become focused on our life and our problems and our future, and sometimes we just need to step back. Do you ever think about reality? Do you ever think about what do you, ever, do you ever think about the fact that you and I are currently on a massive rock, and by the time I'm done with this sermon, we will have traveled 60,000 miles. 60,000. That's Mach 86 if you fly. And we're spinning at about 1,000 miles an hour, and the only reason we're not holding on to our seats right now is because we're so infinitesimally small compared to the size of the globe. And the reason we aren't currently frozen is because there's a massive fireball somewhere out there that's burning 1.8 million of the biggest nuclear weapons we've ever produced per second. And there's a septillion other of those balls, not a million, not a billion, not a trillion, not a quadrillion, quintillion, sextillion, a septillion of those other massive fireballs out there burning right now. And all that's punctuated by black holes of nothing that suck in everything. You live in a world where apples and mangoes and strawberries are made by water and air and sunlight. And caterpillars actually sprout wings and fly. And moms and dads actually make new humans. And mountains periodically explode and shoot flaming liquid rock into the sky. Where, what is this place? You live in a world with 300,000 varieties of beetles and the Sistine Chapel and the Food Network and Pinterest and iPhones and Mount Everest. A world where people laugh and sing and cry and dance and love. A world with 100-foot rogue waves 
and blizzards, a world with cancer and antibiotics and vacuum cleaners. And we sit here in this church in Orange County in California in the United States of America in 2016, and do you ever wonder what kind of mind is behind this? What kind of God not only thought of all of this, but spoke it all into existence and holds it up moment by moment, sustaining it without any effort? And what kind of God did it all for a purpose and had a plan and an intention and a goal in it? You live in a story. You live in the, grand, uh, the grandest story possible, on the biggest stage possible, with nothing insignificant, no detail is too small, and what we need is to step back and see what God is doing, what this massive God is doing in his massive eternal plan. We need to step back and marvel at this God and get our eyes up off of ourself and off of what our, our problems and our future and our, our life. And so, what does an early 20s girl in 2,000 years ago in a barley field have to do with that? In, in Ruth, we're going to see how God carries out his plan, how he carries out his promises. We're going to look at, at three ways that God carries out his plan so that you would marvel at him. That's what I want this morning. I want you to marvel at him because of how he carries out his plans. And so that's what we're going to be looking at, three ways that he does that. But we need to start where any good story starts, at the beginning. So look at Ruth 1.1. And Ruth starts like a lot of good stories start, uh, terribly. If you look in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, in the days when the judges ruled. The, the tagline in the days of the judges was, there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. This is, this is the time when God's covenant people are rejecting him and going after other gods. At the end of Judges, you have people burning down towns just because they're vulnerable and it's easy. You have people getting priests just for their own house and setting up idolatrous worship services. You even have someone sexually assaulted and then dismembered. That's how it ends. and It's just this horrible backdrop. That's the days when this happened, strike number one. Strike number two, there was a famine in the land. That, that should push us back towards Deuteronomy 30, where God said that if you do not keep my covenant, your land will be cursed. It won't, it, the rain will turn to dust. And so it, it, this time period is during the judges. It's during a famine. The land is under the curse of God. And strike number three, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah. Well, the last two stories in the book of Judges both start with Bethlehem and Judah. And both of those stories are highlighting how bad it got in the time of the Judges. So if you're an Israelite reading this and you see the days of the Judges, famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, you're, you're doing a facepalm at this point. How could, how could this story possibly end well? It gets worse. This man went to sojourn in the country of Moab. And there's all these, Ruth, it has hilarious irony in it. And, and so Bethlehem literally means house of bread. And so Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, doesn't treat God as king, but runs away to, from the house of bread to try to get bread somewhere else. 
and it all falls apart. The, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. This is strike number five. You, you aren't supposed to take Moabite wives if you're an Israelite. This is further covenant breaking. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is a bad beginning. Everyone dies, pretty much. And you, you see the judges ruling, the famine in the land, and so you've got this horrible backdrop setting. How, again, how is this going to end well? And as you look through the rest of chapter one, what you see is that Naomi decides she's going to go back to Bethlehem. She's going to go back to her hometown, and she tells her daughters-in-law, don't come with me. Widows in that time, they had no protection, they had no rights, they really were in a dire situation. So she says, I can't give you husbands, don't come with me. And Orpah does what makes sense and goes back to her people and presumably would go get remarried. But Ruth, in verse 14, clung to her. And Ruth ends up putting her faith in Yahweh. And that's why she clings to Naomi. And we'll come back to that more. But she stays. And so Naomi and Ruth are now coming back to Bethlehem. And keep in mind, this is Naomi who deserted earlier and, and a young Moabite widow. So they're not in a good place right now. And, and verse 21 and 22 sets the stage as we're going to go into chapter 2. 21 says, this is Naomi speaking, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? That's the question that's going to play out in chapter 2. Is God against her? Is God against his people? And then in 22... So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So that's our setting as we come into chapter 2. And the first thing we're going to see in chapter 2 is God's providence. Marvel at God's providence. That's the first thing that we want to do. We want to marvel at God's providence in verses 1 through 7. Look down at chapter 2 now in verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. It's your first glimmer of hope. Maybe, maybe this guy is going to play into this somehow. In, in verse 2, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And so back then, gleaning, the way it worked, you'd have your grain growing up in the field, you'd come through with the sickle and swing it through and it'd push it all over to the side and whatever you missed, people could come through and pick that up. Well, the junior hires had the best modern day equivalent of this. They said, oh, that's like when you go and you pick up the aluminum cans and then you recycle them and you get money back for it. Yeah, that's not, that's not bad if you want to think of it in a modern day equivalent. So they are... They are living hand to mouth. They're trying to get food. And so Ruth goes out into the field. Naomi tells her, go, my daughter. And now we're going to zero in on verses 3 and 4 because the author uses two techniques to highlight God's providence, God's control. Look at what he does. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened 
to come. If we want to be real literal, her chance chanced upon the field of Boaz. She just so happened upon this field. And then he emphasized it again. Look at four. And behold, they don't have exclamation points in Hebrew. So behold is their way of saying, listen up. This is important. Behold, what happens? Boaz came from Bethlehem. A really helpful way, I thought, of bringing that into English is, of course. Of, of course Boaz came from Bethlehem. Wouldn't you know, Boaz came from Bethlehem. What's the author highlighting here? He's highlighting this. There is someone at work here. There is someone behind the scenes moving and working and controlling what is going on. And it's not just here in chapter 2. It's throughout the whole book. Who, who brought Naomi out to the country of Moab? Who brought her back? Who brought Ruth to her? Who gave Ruth the faith? Who caused the, allowed the men to die? Who did all of these things? And who brings them in 122 at just the right time, the beginning of barley harvest? God. It's his hand working in and behind and through all these events. And I thought uh, Steve Cad, the, the missionary who was up here, told a great story at the men's breakfast yesterday. He said, usually we think of ISIS or of terrorists as uh, the problem or as the enemy. And he said, ISIS is a tool in God's hand. He said, what's happening is as ISIS comes through these territories, everyone in front of them is fleeing away. And they're looking at ISIS and saying, if that's Islam, I don't want anything to do with that. And guess where they run to? They run to the refugee camps. And guess who's waiting in the refugee camps? Believers. With the gospel, with the hope, the only hope of salvation, waiting there. ISIS is a tool in God's hand to advance his kingdom. So is the president. So is every king in every nation at every event. There is a sovereign hand in control working all things together. And we're going to cheat a little bit in this book. I, I would normally never do this, but we're going to turn to the end because it helps us. Look at the last two verses of the whole book. Uh, sorry to spoil, but Ruth and Boaz do end up together. And this is describing their line. And in 21, it says, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And who do we call the son of David? The Messiah, Jesus. This is a story about God working in his providence behind the scenes to bring about the Savior that would let you and me not go to hell. This is about God's providence. We need to marvel at God's working. And so here's something I want to make really clear. At that time, what God was moving, what God was doing was bringing about the Messiah, right? He's bringing about the Savior. That's what his hand was doing. But how does that connect with us now? Because the Messiah already came. How, how does his providence work now? What's his, remember, we want to step back and see the big plan. What is God doing in this massive eternal plan? And where does my life fit in that? Well, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And now you and I, we play a part how? We become the ambassadors for Christ that go into the world and that share this gospel and that take the good news to the ends of the earth until they all hear and until Jesus comes back. 
That's the plan he's working now. And so do you see your life through this lens, this providence? When he puts you at work, when he brings the children into your life that he brings, when he puts you with the neighbors that he puts you with, or you get on that team at work that you didn't want to be a part of, or you're in school with the teacher who just berates you, do you see that God's hand is at work placing you exactly where he wants you to be, to be a part of this eternal plan that he's carrying out where you are going to be a witness for the gospel? That's what we've been looking at in Acts. We will be his witnesses. We have a part to play in this eternal plan of God. So marvel at his providence that He is always at work and that he's placing you exactly where he wants you bring the light of the gospel to the nations until he decides to sum up all of history in return. So first, marvel at his providence. Marvel at his providence. Let's just see a couple more things in the text before we move on. Boaz comes from Bethlehem in verse four, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Interesting, God, it looks like in the time of the judges, this would have been rare. It looks like we might have not just any man, but a godly man. And Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came. She has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And now look down in verse eight, and we're gonna look at this, marvel at God's kindness, marvel at his providence, and now number two, if you're taking notes, marvel at God's kindness. And it's so neat, it's vertical and it's horizontal, and the way we say it in junior high, there's no non-corny way to say this. God's kindness, God's love, it's like a, it's like a snowball effect or a snowball of love is especially corny. But that is what's happening. God is showing kindness and love to Ruth and to Boaz, and then they're showing it to Naomi, and Boaz is showing it to Ruth, and all this kindness snowballs until you eventually end up at the Messiah where God shows his ultimate total pinnacle of love at the cross. So it's like, horizontal and vertical moving forward in history and so you have this kindness of God displayed in multiple ways that we're gonna see. Mainly we're gonna see it through Boaz and how he treats Ruth. So look down at verse eight. Then Boaz said to Ruth, and we have to stop there, uh, this is a landowner in the ancient Near East. You don't talk to women in your field who aren't supposed to be there. You tell the servant to tell the girl, hey, get off my property. But he shows her kindness. He, the fact that he even talks to her is kindness. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. We have lots of ways even in English of saying this. To, to a child, you might say, listen to me. To a colleague, you might say, hey, listen, I need to tell you something. To a superior, you might say, uh, could you please, uh, could we talk if you have a chance to listen? I have some things to say. And, and Boaz here is using the, the most kind, polite way of saying this. Now listen, what, what is he doing? Now listen, and look what he calls her. My daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? He's giving her protection, he's giving her provision, and here's another I love, this is a really funny turn here of irony. Uh, and when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. 
First of all, you don't get to do this. This is special that she's getting to do this, but remember when he, uh, he asked the young man and the young man says, she's the young Moabite woman. That was like a racial slur, basically. And now God's flipped it on its head and, they, and uh, Ruth is being told, you can go drink the water that those young men drew. It's just interesting that God puts these things into the Bible and it's funny and I love that. So then she fell, look at her response. Her response tells you how incredible his kindness is. Then she fell on her face bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But his kindness isn't done. You get a little picture in verse 11 of this kind of snowball effect. Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. So God shows Ruth kindness and saves her and then Ruth shows kindness to Naomi and Boaz hears about it and now Boaz is showing kindness to her. It's all been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I want you to notice one thing about her response. Uh, Ruth is thought to be the prototype of the Proverbs 31 woman. Uh, this in Chapter three, verse 11, she's described with the same word that's used for that, and then she's in the line of David, and so Solomon would have probably known about her, stories would have gone on, and so if you want a portrait of what the Proverbs 31 woman looks like in real life, her response is really interesting, and again, a junior hire brought this out. I didn't see this until someone mentioned this. She said, wow, that's a really humble response. Look in verse 13. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, well, I am not one of your servants. She's the lowest word for the, the lowest rung of servant. She's saying, I'm not even, not even that. And in a culture where we're so quick to be entitled, it's a really beautiful picture of what a Proverbs 31 woman would look like, that she's humble. And so Boaz comes, there's even more kindness. Look at verse 14. And at mealtime, he says to her, come and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. If you've eaten with Pastor Mike, you know that he loves hummus. Uh, this is a similar idea. Have, have some of my hummus or share my fries and dip in my ketchup. <laughs> it's a little silly for us, but this is a big deal that she would get to do this. And he goes even further. He, she sits beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. He serves her. He serves her. Let her glean. Then he instructs his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. Verse 16 now, and also pull out some bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. They'd normally have to come around and pick up what was missed. He's saying leave some just open on the ground so you can come up and pick it up easily. And so, Here's what we, we need to see out of this. First, God's kindness. Boaz is being obedient to the law right now. In the law, God told them, don't go over your fields twice, don't beat your olive trees twice, let the foreigners come in and, and glean in your fields. What kind of God writes that into the books? That's God's kindness to, to write that law. And then God's kindness in saving Boaz and in saving Ruth. He didn't have to save Ruth. Ruth gets included in the line of the Messiah, a pagan Moabite woman. He didn't have to do it that way, but he did. 
Because he is gracious and he is kind and he is still that today if you would trust in him. That graciousness is still extended today. And also we need to look at Boaz's kindness. I have a friend at school, his name is Romans. And Romans is from Latvia. And Romans grew up in an orphanage. And he, his testimony is amazing. He, he said that when the people would come around to do adoptions, they'd hide him because he was so full of rage and angry and nobody wanted him. And one day, I guess he kind of snuck out or somehow got around and this Christian woman was, was there and was make, going to adopt someone. And she said, that one. And they said, no, 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 you, you don't want that one. And she said, no, give me the worst. Give me the worst one. Okay, take Romans. And he said, I went to her home and I tried to make her as miserable as I could. And she kept loving him. And she kept loving him. And she kept loving him. And he became a believer. And now he's in seminary, training to be a pastor and telling people the gospel. And if I looked at your life, if someone looked at your life yesterday or last week or even this morning, could they point to something and say, that looks like Boaz. That looks like kindness that is way beyond what the law requires. The law didn't require Boaz to treat Ruth like he did, but he did. And guess what? God moves his purposes forward, this big plan that we've been talking about. He he still does that through kindness. See, when you're in the workplace and when you're out in the world and you show this kind of kindness to people, what do they do? That's, that's weird. What, what is that? I, I want some of that. We need to marvel at God's kindness. Then we need to realize that he has put us here to display that kindness to others, to display that graciousness to others. And before we move on to the third point, I just want to look at one more thing. I want to look at Ruth's faith. I don't want to miss this. Look at Chapter 1, back in verse 16, Naomi is telling her, Ruth, go back to your people. Go back, get a husband. And Ruth, Ruth says in 16, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge, and your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. I, have to, I can't pass this up. I have to ask, do you have that kind of faith? That's saving faith. The faith that says, God, I've seen what God is like and I'm going to trust him and land and family and country, all of that is secondary. All of that is minor compared to him. Have you seen God's kindness in such a way that you've trusted in him like that? There is no other hope. But that hope extends to rebels like us and extends to people. This is why Ruth is in here. Ruth shouldn't be in this story. She's a Moabite. She's a woman. She's all these things that, that, that there's no reason that she would have to be in here. But God chooses in his kindness to pour out his blessing on those who don't deserve it. So we need to marvel at God's providence. We need to marvel at God's kindness. And lastly, we need to marvel at God's faithfulness. We need to marvel at God's 
faithfulness. Look in verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. You know, like a regular-sized ephah. An ephah was uh, about 22 liters, so think 11 two-liter Coke bottles, or think about 50 pounds. Uh, this is a ton of food. She has been greatly blessed by, this is another example of Boaz's kindness. She beat out what she had. Verse 18, she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, and it's going to be a little bit, it's staggered, it's harder to see in English, but it's staggered on purpose to push us toward verse 20. She puts his name at the end. The The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Okay, why is this important? Why does this show God's faithfulness? Naomi just made a quote. Naomi just quoted Genesis 24. You don't have to turn there. I'll I'll turn back there, though. But what's happening in Genesis 24 is that God has promised Abraham that he is going to make him a great nation. He's going to bless all the nations through him. And this is the line of the Messiah that's going to come, the Savior. And Abraham's son doesn't have a wife. And so he tells his servant to go find her a wife. And when the servant finds a wife, he says in verse 27, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. In Hebrew, same grammatical, same structure. She just transferred it over. What's she doing? What's the point here? This is what she's saying. The God who's being faithful to me right now is the same God who was faithful all the way back in Genesis. He's the same God who was faithful to carry out his promises with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He was faithful when Moses was carried into the palace of Pharaoh and he wasn't killed. And see, we focus on the cross a lot, and we should, and it's right, and it's good. And if I said to you, how do you know God is faithful? How do you know God loves you? You would all say, the cross, that's the ultimate display. But it's not the only way. See, what this is showing you is that God was faithful. God was loving you, not just at the cross, but he was loving you when his hand sovereignly guided Ruth into a barley field. He was loving you when, like we said, Moses was brought into Pharaoh's household. He was loving you when the servant found Rebekah. And he was loving you all the way back in Genesis 3 when he said, someone will come who will crush the head of the serpent. That's why Paul prays for the Ephesians. I want you to know the height and breadth and depth of the love of Christ. Why? Because it extends all the way back. He's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And he will be faithful and kind to eternity. So we need to marvel at this kind of faithfulness. Church history, our, our family history, the martyrs have written in blood the faithfulness of God across church history for us. 
Jesus said he would build his church and that not even the gates of hell would prevail against it. Peter crucified upside down, didn't do it. Paul with his head cut off, didn't do it. Nero burning Christians as lights and throwing them into the arena, didn't do it. When thousands of Puritan pastors were cast out of their pulpit in one day, they call it Black Bartholomew's Day, that didn't do it. No amount of hatred from a government or king or anything can stop God's plan. That's why we're here today. That's why you're seated here today, because God was faithful to his promises. Amen? He, he is always faithful, and not only in that big, scheme, grand scheme of things, but also he's faithful to you and to me individually, faithful to his promise that if you trust in him, you'll find rest for your soul, that he'll be with you, that death can't hurt you, that he'll take care of your needs, that you have eternal life, that you have assurance that he'll get you to heaven, that you are God's child, that he gives you power to fight sin and forgiveness of sin, that Satan can't accuse you in the heavenly court, and that Jesus is praying and interceding for you even now. He does not forsake his promises. Ever. There's no time limit on his faithfulness. He was faithful then. He'll be faithful now. He'll be faithful to eternity. So we need to marvel at this God. When we want to get focused in on what's going on with us and this and that in my life, where we get anxious about the world and we think culture's falling apart, the world's falling apart, we need to step back and do, do you ever think about reality? These realities that this God is working, bringing his purposes to pass, that he has made you his witness. Do you marvel at his providence? Do you marvel at his kindness that saves people like us and that is constantly showing love to those who don't deserve it? And do you marvel at his faithfulness that never forsakes a single promise and never will And it's interesting, we, the Old Testament believers, this last thing I want us to remember, the Old Testament believers were waiting for the Messiah. And that's what God, that was the main plan that God was working toward in their day. And you get to Matthew and you read the genealogy and you see this is the one, this is the king. He is here and you get to Matthew 4 and he takes the whole thing on his shoulders and he does what Adam could never do. He conquers Satan, he goes to the cross, he conquers death, he conquers sin, he's raised from the dead. But we wait for the Messiah too today. We also wait for the Messiah. But not for his first return, for his second return. We wait for the return of the king. And in Revelation 19, John tells us about that return. He writes, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty and on his robes and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
That's reality. That's, as we go out, as you go back to work tomorrow, as you go to your neighbors and your families, if you've trusted in this God, take this good news to them. That, that is how we fit in this grand plan. You, you are Christ's church. If you believe in him, you are part of his church and he is using you to move forward his purposes of proclaiming the gospel, of warning them. The Messiah came the first time not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But he comes the second time to judge. And we wait for that day. But until that day, Tell others, take the gospel to them. Trust in the God who is in providential control over all things. Trust the God who is kind and gracious and loving to people who don't deserve it and trust the God who is faithful from eternity past to eternity future. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good and great and we want to marvel at you. We want to see how you work your plan out in history and we want to see how we fit into that. Help us today to rejoice in Christ and what he did and what he accomplished on the cross and help us to take the message of salvation to a world that is dying and has no other hope. Help us to have urgency as we see the day drawing near when you will return to judge. God, we love you and we are thankful that you are such a gracious and good and wonderful God. Amen.